0: This is the Voices in Japan podcast, and on this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jane Nakata, who lives in Iwaki City, Fukushima Prefecture. This episode coincides with the 10-year anniversary of the Great East Japan earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear power plant disasters, and Jane details her experience of being in that area when those disasters occurred in 2011. On top of being seven months pregnant with her first child at the time, she and her husband had just finished building their new house as well. It's a fascinating story about the important decisions they faced and the actions they took. Jane also talks about why she and her family still live in Fukushima Prefecture, how much the area has recovered, and the ways in which her city is still struggling. We also get to hear her talk about the Transformations with Jane podcast, which has helped thousands of people feel less alone in their part of the world, and the other projects that she is a part of that specifically bring women together to create new networks, prioritize themselves, and their goals. Enjoy the show! 1, 2, 3... Yeah, so glad you could come on the podcast. uh, it's important time because uh, you live down in Fukushima, which was one of the areas that was uh, affected in 2011 by the triple disaster, as they call it, the very large earthquake and the tsunami, and then the uh, incident at the uh, nuclear power plant down there. And uh, I want to ask about that, and you have a lot of great projects that I want to ask about as well, too. But I guess before we get into that, uh, there was actually a pretty big earthquake uh, I guess it was a day before Valentine's Day, right? And, uh I mean, they're calling it even an aftershock of the uh 2011 earthquake, I guess. They're saying that uh with one that's that big, even 10 years later, it's still possible to have aftershocks and stuff. So, just wanted to see if everything was okay after that, because I think that caused quite a bit of damage. They were saying, at least at the time, like, you know, over 100 injuries and stuff, and a lot of uh things falling off the shelves and businesses affected and stuff, so... Uh, how was that for you? I think it happened late at night and stuff. Were you at home? It you? did.
1: So, That's right. And I was just, I'd just gotten into bed. I had been in bed for about four minutes and suddenly it started shaking. And, you know, we're very used to having earthquakes here in Fukushima now. And so I was like, mm, I'm not sure I'm going to get out of bed for this one. And then it kept getting stronger and stronger. And and I noticed that it was a different kind of shake to what we had in 2011, which was a kind of a rolly, very long, rolly one. This was a very, I, the only word I have to describe it is juddery earthquake. Mm. And it was really, yeah, it was really cranking up. So I flicked the light on, jumped up. Uh, started, you know, went up to ran up to check on my kids who live who are not live <laughs> who are <laughs> upstairs from where I was sleeping. And by the time I got up to them, it was finished. Oh, really? So, oh, so it, it was too long not long, too long here, but it was really quite strong. And I have we've not had a really strong one like that for a long time. So yeah, it was a it was real adrenaline rush and sort of a panic stations for a moment there. That said, we, my house was fine. Nothing happened. We didn't get anything broken or smashed or anything. But the next day we heard, yeah, some, you know, shops had lost all their bottles of sake or whatever. Um, And I think the Tohoku Shinkansen was shut down for quite a few days for lack of power and some, some places lost power. But here in Iwaki City, it was very minimal damage considering how, how rough the earthquake was. And, I just have to put that down to the fact that we had to rebuild a lot of stuff last time round. So we've got a lot of good buildings here now that are able to stand up to that kind of earthquake. The major damage that there was, was just to our mental health. Again, we, yeah, we, a lot of my friends said to me, oh my God, it reminds me of 10 years ago. That was so scary. And yeah, it, I think it brought back a lot of memories that we thought we had processed, but it turns out, yeah. little bit of trauma there and I think it took me a week to sort of calm down after that one (laughs) feeling a bit more normal now um yeah but definitely very um conscious of the fact that it's 311 10 year anniversary very soon and it was a nice wake-up call I think for us to make sure that we are prepared for anything future because as we've just seen things will still happen here in Fukushima and in the rest of Japan.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's still pretty crazy that things continue on, on many different levels and many respects and stuff. And it's always interesting. Like I didn't, uh, experience earthquakes. I don't think until I came to Japan and, uh, yeah, just like you said, uh, kind of the, uh, effects mentally. Like, I think there really is like, you know, PTSD and everything like, uh, the first big one that I experienced was probably two years after I was in Japan, and and I uh, was in a uh, you know the apartment that I was living in at the time, and it was a pretty big one for Hokkaido. I think they said it was about a four or five. And uh, and then I went to work uh, that day. And when I came back to my apartment and I walked in the door, I felt this very eerie feeling, and it was definitely like you know I'd gone through some very stressful event there. So being you know in a place like Tohoku, which obviously you got the very worst of what happened in 2011, and, uh, and you know, the aftershocks from that continued on very intensively for quite a while after that, and were you in Iwaki at that time as well, or?
1: Yeah, I was, and actually, to give you, you know, here's, here's my story, Yeah, to give you a little okay. bit of background <laughs> to that day, um, yeah. so that was March 11th, right, and about two weeks before that, there had been a major earthquake in New Zealand. It was the Christchurch earthquake, and a lot of Japanese people were caught up in that. And uh, and unfortunately, a lot of um, students who were uh, studying in New Zealand actually died in that earthquake. It was a terrible, uh, terrible thing. And Japan actually sent a lot of rescue workers to help with that quake. And when I saw that happening in my home country, in a place which never gets earthquakes Christchurch is not a place you would expect to have an earthquake like that. I knew that that could happen anywhere. And so I thought, oh, that could happen here in Fukushima, even. I've got to get ready. And so I went around preparing myself and I went around telling people because people were saying to me, oh, poor you, you know, poor New Zealand, how is your family? And I would say, by the way, are you prepared for an earthquake? And they'd say, no, we're not having, we're not going to have an earthquake here in Fukushima. And I said, why are you saying that? And they said, well, why would the government have built a nuclear power station in Fukushima if they thought there was going to be a massive earthquake here? So a lot of Fukushima residents thought that we were safe from such things, and a lot of people were unprepared for that day. But thanks to what happened in Christchurch, I actually was kind of prepared for that day. But on the actual day of March 11th, I was at home and my husband called me because he was at the tax office. And if you're in Japan, you know, this time of the year is tax season. We have right. to go to the tax <laughs> office. Yeah. My husband was at the tax office and he had forgotten something, some really important document. And I was at home and he called me and said, could you bring it to me? So I got in my car and I drove to the tax office where they were, you know, everyone's filing the tax returns, gave him this document. And at the time, I was actually seven months pregnant with my first oh, wow. child. So we're talking kind of large watermelon size stomach here, you know, um, you know, I'm not, it's not a great time to be going into labor, you know, <laughs> it's seven months. Right. And yeah. so I was, you know, thinking, Oh, I'm, I'll go to Toys R Us and have a look at some, see what sort of maternity things they have their baby stuff. Did that for 10 or 15 minutes. And then I got in my car and I was about to go home. I was just mm. driving out of um, a parking area Thank goodness it was an open parking area, not like an underground car park or anything like that. And I just noticed my car was shaking and I was going slowly anyway. So I stopped my car and yeah, it just got stronger and stronger. And it was one of those things like, is this, you know, do I have to do anything? Is this going to be just a a Shindo Yong and it'll be all over? No, this is getting worse and it's not stopping. And I was driving... Um, a Mazda Premacy, you know, which is kind of like a people mover type car. And those Mm. things rock, yeah, they rock and roll. And (laughs) I was thinking this car is going to tip over with me in it. This is how much my car was rocking. I was, yeah, I was getting really terrified because I thought I would be safe sitting in my car, surely. You know, if there was a bit of falling debris, maybe it's better to be a debris, sorry, it's better to be in a car than standing on the footpath. Hmm. But this car was rocking, so I had to get out. I thought, surely the safest thing to do now is to get out of this car. So I got out, and I had to hold on to the wing mirror of the car to stay upright. And I remember looking around and seeing people crouched down on the ground because they could not stand up Hmm. and screaming, people screaming because they were so scared, obviously. Um, I remember seeing the trees on the hill nearby just waving back and forth like shaking like crazy and these clouds of pollen because it's hay fever season right clouds oh, of right. pollen yeah. just going into the air and the air turning yellow and and gray with dust and stuff and it's
0: like apocalyptic scene yeah right <laughs> and <laughs> yeah.
1: next to me is this sort of quite a sort of an old supermarket that was just rattling and screeching and shaking the the building sound yeah And I was thinking, well, thank God I'm not in there. (laughs) At least I'm outside (laughs) and not being attacked by falling, you know, produce items and things. And so eventually it stopped. Yeah, the shaking stopped. And in my state of shock and panic, I got into my car and I I was thinking, I just have to get to where my husband is because he wasn't very far away. He was 300 meters away, maybe. So I got in my car and drove to where I knew he was. And he was like, what are you doing here? I bet, didn't you go home? And I was like, no, I was shopping. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> luckily, we were near each other on, you know, I was, could reunite with him within a few minutes.
0: Okay. That's and, always good. Yeah,
1: yeah right. Because it, had it been a normal work day, he would have been way across town at his office and I would have been either at home by myself or at my work, you know, which was not where I would want to be in an earthquake at all. Luckily, we were together. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm pregnant, right? I'm pregnant. Um, Yeah. Not great. So we're standing in this car park outside the tax office and everybody's standing around and everybody's on their phone trying to call people and say, are you okay? Where are you? And the people in the tax office come out and say, it has been a massive earthquake up in Sendai. And at that time, they didn't say anything about a tsunami. And Mm. we thought, okay, we need to get home before the next big one comes. So my Mm. husband and I jumped in our cars and we drove in convoy all the way home. And on the way home, we were very, very lucky that the route we chose, there were no obstructions in the road. On the other side of the road, the manholes had like popped out of the road There were fences that had fallen over, like brick block fences that had fallen all over the road. But on our side of the road, we had the right of way to just drive home smoothly, even though Mm -hmm. it was shaking the whole time. And when we got home, I said to my husband, why didn't you stop? There, there was shaking so much, but he was driving kind of a low set car and he was like, it wasn't shaking. What are you talking about? And <laughs> because he was in front and I was following behind in my people mover, which was really rocking as we drove along. Probably not what you're supposed to be doing, right? But we just had this feeling we had to get home. And unfor- for us, we were incredibly lucky that we the road the route we chose if we actually drove towards the sea, can you believe it? Oh wow. Now, how dumb were we? But we <laughs> were lucky that we're just where we were, the tsunami did not come that far inland where we were. Um where we are down here in Fukushima. But had we been further north, might not have been so lucky. So I had yeah, no Yawaki, concept, yeah, of the tsunami at that point.
0: You know, you're kind of saying you didn't maybe uh, understand the scope yet of what had happened. I was actually, you know, at work because I think it was around like a little after 3 p.m. or something, or was it after 2 p.m. when it actually struck? I can't remember, but it was in the afternoon. And in Sapporo, of course, it was only like a 3 or 3.5. But every, and we were in our office at the home office, you know, there's like 60 people working and the earthquake starts going. And, uh, yeah, so it didn't get too big up here in the portal, but it lasted for a really long time. And everyone was like, okay, this is something different, but we had no idea. I had no idea what was going on until I got home, turned on the news. And that's still one of the things that kind of haunts me about the whole thing now is I just remember on the news, like, obviously all the news channels are focused on what's going on and the, uh, anchors or whoever, they all have their, you know, uh, helmets on basically. And it was just like, There was still aftershock after aftershock after aftershock happening and stuff. The area you were in, um, I mean, obviously you didn't have to evacuate or anything, but what what was the next thing that happened for you guys after uh, the, the major earthquake occurred?
1: Well, yeah, we got home and found our house was still standing, which even though I drove past a whole lot of buildings that were still standing. In my mind, I thought I'm going to get home and my house is going to be like a pile of sticks on the ground. When <laughs> I got home, my house was standing and we'd actually just built our house six months earlier. It had been finished. Oh, wow. So it was yeah. a, a brand new house. And here was me thinking, you know, what bad luck, but actually what good luck because we had the latest earthquake technology house and we didn't even lose one cup or plate because the house is built to just sort of, you know, roll with the the earthquakes and things. And so it was amazing to me to walk into my house and see no damage considering what we had just experienced. However, the next day, we had a rough night, yeah? Every 20 minutes it would shake, and we're talking like big shakes. So we didn't get much sleep at all, and the next morning we woke up and we had no water. And that was the only lifeline, the major lifeline that we'd lost. We were so lucky we did not lose power because my home is all denko, which means, um, you know, all electricity. So we were yeah. able to to be warm and have light and things, and that was a lot more that, uh, than a lot of people had. We had no water, though, and it would be more than a month before water came back onto our home. Wow. And, you know, you can live without water. You know, you can collect water. It's not fun, but you can live without water. But the problem for me was being pregnant with the – things happening with the nuclear power station up the road, but also that my my clinic where I was due to have my baby is in my neighborhood and also without water and therefore cannot operate. So that was a problem for, for us. And at that time, we also didn't have internet. The internet had stopped working for us. So we couldn't find out what was really going on. And we could watch the TV. Luckily, our TV had not fallen over and smashed. We could watch TV to find out, you know, and see what had happened with the tsunami and see what the Japanese government was telling us about the nuclear power station. But as we all know now, their messaging was very much to keep people calm and you had to read between the lines a lot to guess what potentially could have really been going on up there. But we were getting some... Text messages. I could, I had one of those flip phones. I didn't even have an iPhone then. Uh, not many people did have an iPhone back then, right? Right. So I had a flip phone, and I spent hours like tapping little messages into it and sending them off to people, hoping that they would get through because things weren't getting through. But I would get the odd message from my family in New Zealand, just distraught that I was still in Fukushima with what was going on happening up the road. So after two days it was Monday so Friday was when the earthquake happened and we spent two days here with no water and this this festering situation of a nuclear disaster happening up the road and then my husband found out that he didn't actually have to go to work on Monday which was you know <laughs> nice but he honestly Prize, thought he surprise. had to go. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, sorry, yeah, we should probably we should probably mention your uh, your husband's Japanese. Right?
1: Yeah, my so, husband's Japanese yeah. works at a Japanese company, <laughs> and being a Japanese person, he thought he had to go to work on Monday, called his work and found out that you know the, because he hadn't been there when the earthquake had happened, so he didn't know that there was so much damage in his office and the windows had smashed, and there was no way he could go in there and go to work. So we found out, oh, actually, he doesn't have to go to work for a week, and. We actually had a tank of petrol because I had f- oh, gasoline, if you you know, if, if you will, because <laughs> I had filled up my car with petrol three days earlier, uh, mm-hmm. three days before the earthquake, and at that time, gasoline was really expensive, and everybody was driving around with like just the minimum, you know, just a few liters in there, hoping that the petrol price was going to come down and sort of topping up five liters here, uh-huh. five liters there. That was what people were doing but I had filled up my petrol tank. And I remember thinking on that day, oh my God, this is so expensive. I hope I'm not getting in trouble for spending all this money on petrol kind of sort of thought. But <laughs> afterwards, this this almost full tank of petrol was like gold, yeah. So we yeah. were actually able on the Monday, two days later to drive away. And on that day, we packed up, we decided, okay, let's just go and see where we can get to. And so we packed up food, we packed up, you know, sleeping bags in case we have to sleep on the side of the road somewhere. We really didn't know if the roads were even viable because considering all we had seen when we went home was manholes popping out of the road, blocks of, you know, things falling all over the road. We didn't know if we'd be able to even leave Iwaki City. And so Mm -hmm. we packed our things up and we thought, well, we may not ever come back to this home ever again. We may not see our home Again, because realistically, we did not know what was happening with the power station at that time. So we packed all our important documents and bits of jewelry. And I have my dog, made sure I packed him as well, dog food, and a couple of changes of clothes and drove out of Iwaki City. And we were the only people actually evacuating at that time, two cool. days later. Wow. No. We were leaving the city and thinking, oh, we're going to get caught in a traffic jam and we're going to use up all our petrol and we're not going to be able to get anywhere. But we seemed to be just ahead of the wave of people trying to leave because at that time, people still thought things were kind of under control, but that was not the message that we were getting from overseas through right. minimal text messaging. And so, yeah, we just we just got and we drove. And once we got out of, the city we got away from the petrol stations where there was like traffic jams of people trying to get petrol people trying to get food from the supermarket and you know cars lined up down the road we went through all these back roads to try and avoid those places and those traffic jams and managed to get all the way to niigata nearly which is sort of if you drive from iwaki city right across japan towards the sea of japan you'll end up in niigata and there we could get petrol. and We filled up our tank and we were like, okay, things are kind of normal here. Wow, it's a different world over this side of <laughs> Japan, even though we're kind of at the same latitude. Um, yeah, we, we thought, okay, we're going to be okay now. And so we headed towards my husband's family's house. And we were very lucky to have somewhere to go to because mm-hmm. a lot of people in Japan live where their relatives are. Yeah, people live in the same town all their lives and all their relatives are nearby or so they're all all the whole families are affected and extended families too and a lot of people had nowhere to go but luckily my my husband comes from the opposite end of japan totori prefecture could you get any further away from fukushima it's a thousand kilometers to get there so we we started driving in that direction and we actually ended up going there and it turned out to be two weeks of my husband. And I staying there and just watching this disaster unfold from a distance. it was, yeah, we felt very lucky to be there even because a lot of people couldn't leave. They had no gas to leave, and a lot of people were too scared to leave. They didn't know what they were going to. And on the day that I actually left, that you know we we went we drove out of Iwaki. I dropped my key off at a friend's house, to my house, just in case. And she cried for me. She said, why are you, why are you leaving? This is, it's, it's too dangerous out there. You don't know what the roads are like. You don't know if you will be able to get anywhere. And I just said, okay, well, we've got everything we need. We can survive in our car for a week if we have to. We'll be okay. And yeah, she she thought that it was safer to stay. And a lot of people probably thought that as well. And, you know, if you weren't pregnant and you're an adult and you had a house (laughs) to stay in, you know, it wasn't, and food to eat, it wasn't so bad. But yeah, for me, that's not really where I wanted to be being seven months pregnant and, and having somewhere else to go. Yeah. It was just better to remove myself from the situation.
0: Yeah. I think like, I mean, obviously I can't even imagine what it was like for people that were down in that area going through it. But I, I mean, I remember thinking, I don't see how Japan's going to like recover from this. Uh, the economy was already struggling right before that happened. And then this huge disaster happens. Obviously has come back, uh, quite a bit from that. But the situation in Fukushima, especially, I mean, I've been trying to, uh, read up, uh, about what's been going on. I remember like after it started happening and you, just like you were saying, you get a different kind of explanation from international media, uh, from what was being said in Japan. And, uh, it was almost like, I don't, I don't even know if I want to read about it cause I don't know what's true and what's not true. seems like a lot of stuff now, uh, is more evident of what the real situation is. Um, obviously the cleanup and, uh, decontamination, uh, is still going on in Fukushima. You know, they're trying to scrape still the, uh, radioactive, uh, surface layer of earth to, uh, or they've been doing it obviously for several years to, so that people can return. Um, the situation at the nuclear power plant itself where they're read that they were supposed to start removing like the molten, uh, fuel. Uh, from next year, but now because of coronavirus, the technology that was being developed, uh, that's going to get pushed back even in another year. Um, But they're coming up to the big decision of, I guess it's already been been made about releasing the uh, water that they've been using to cool um, the reactors. They're now talking about releasing it back into the sea. And for you, um, somebody from that area, I mean, at what point did you guys return And if you could expand on that a little bit about why you guys did return into the area and why it was important, why you think that's important.
1: Yeah. um, And that's the thing. At the time of the explosion and the few weeks after that, it was not really a place you wanted to be. And nobody knew where this radiation was. We had no way to measure it. And none of us really understood what it was even at all. What is radiation? How does it work? Right. I was very lucky in that my husband does know about this and he was able to explain it to me in a, you know, in a, in a, they say very cool way, you know, this is what it is. This is how it works. This is how it affects things. And so that is how we made our decision based on not, not, not so much emotions, but more on science, (laughs) Mm -hmm. if you will. Yes. Because if you read the media stories, you can give yourself a heart attack and a mental breakdown about it all very, very easily because they're trying to sell them, tell these stories. And Fukushima was selling stories, right? That was a great way to sell, sell stories back in the day. So for us, we could see with our own eyes, okay, this is the radiation level in our house. This is the radiation level in our neighborhood. This is the radiation level, you know, where our, you know, where where we work, all these things. We could, after a while, we could measure these things and we could see, okay, it's not that bad here because thanks to a gust of wind, the radiation was taken elsewhere and that was somebody else's misfortune. That was my good fortune, that I was able to come back to my my home and be able to live in my home. Unfortunately for somebody else, it means that their town became a no-go zone due to high levels of radiation. But because the wind was blowing in a certain direction, my city was not so badly affected. And we could see that with our own eyes. We could measure it with, you know, Geiger counters. I, I have a guy; Ge- I own a Geiger counter. But these days, mostly I just take it with me to other places and check <laughs> how much is the radiation here. Oh, it's about the same. Or, oh, you guys, you got more radiation than we have in Fukushima. You know, it's, it's kind of fun. But, um, yeah, it became the thing to have was to have your own Geiger counter and to be able to check that you were being safe. So yeah, that is, we sort of looked at the science of it and decided that no different for us to being here than it is to being in, in a lot of places in the world. And we are very lucky that that was the situation here in Iwaki city. A lot of decontamination was done around our city and a lot of measurement was done. People would come and check our garden and see, Um, you know what the levels were and all of that if anything needed to be taken away all of the parks were decontaminated and I was very lucky grateful and lucky that my child was still small enough that I didn't have to send her to school I didn't have to have her eat kioshoku or drink milk or whatever that these were the things that parents were worried about at that time and I could control all of her where she was going you know how long she spent outside so I didn't need to worry about that that Things that un- parents with older children had to worry about. So for us, it it was okay to stay uh, in Fukushima, and a lot of people decided not to stay here, and that's their decision. And everybody has to make their own decision. But that's how we decided to come back. Uh, you know, my husband came back after two weeks, and I actually decided that because I was extremely traumatized, obviously from what had happened, that I would go back to New Zealand and visit my family, and because I wasn't. So far along in my pregnancy that I couldn't travel by airplane, I actually flew to New Zealand. And when I got to New Zealand, it was a whole another world, you know, where my my family was living. It was like, you know, peace on earth. <laughs> it was, you know, not shaking. And and I was so far away from all of that horribleness that I just decided I was not going back to Japan until my baby had been born. So we stayed in New Zealand until she was born, and it was Obon that year, so August before we came back, but. By that time, a lot of progress had been made with decontamination and knowing about radiation levels and things. But, you know, that trip going to New Zealand back, I exposed my daughter and myself to more radiation than being in New Ze- in Fukushima for a year, you
0: know. Right. So that was the that- choice
1: that I made. Yeah. But mentally, I needed to escape. Yeah. I needed to go. And that was that was the decision there.
0: Well, there was, uh, I mean, a lot of uh, foreigners were leaving Japan under the advice or even instructions in some cases, you know, of their home countries, like a lot of Americans. Uh, I mean, there was a huge exit of, uh, you know, expats from Japan during that period. Uh, my brother and his family were living in Tokyo at the time, and uh, his wife and their three kids went back to the U.S. for an extended period as well. Uh, he was still in Tokyo working. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of people kind of uh fortunately had the opportunity to kind of get away and maybe recover a bit mentally, just like you were describing um you know Fukushima has faced uh obviously there's been a huge stigma about the situation there, and um I mean being in Hokkaido, the topic that always came up is is the produce and stuff from that area of Japan, not just fukushima but anywhere um is it safe to eat and buy. Do you think people are kind of uh, justified to still have their concerns? Like even the Olympics this year, there were some um, events that were supposed to take place, I guess, in Fukushima as a way to help promote the area again. I mean, it was a huge, uh, had really strong tourism industry before everything happened. And I think a lot of it has recovered to some degree. But does it still feel like there's a lot of outside People doubting the safety of the situation there, and for people there, uh, do you kind of look at that and feel like it's time to get past that, or do you, th- do you still kind of understand how people can still somewhat be worried about it?
1: Yeah, so that's a tr- that's a tricky one. I mean, Fukushima. Well, let's just let's just put that to rest now. That Fukushima food is the safest food in Japan. Right. Some of the safest food in the world, because yeah, it's been it- so thoroughly tested, and you know, everywhere has some radiation right so we're not we're not measuring fukushima against other places that have zero yeah Everywhere has you know something and so you know there was a lot of testing done a lot of decontamination done a lot of um figuring out how they can still produce food safely and so yeah rigorous rigorous testing was done for years and now it's more, they're doing more spot checks, but they're still checking 10 years on that the food is safe. So I have no no qualms about eating Fukushima food. So in that respect, um, if you're visiting, so yeah, the government decided to host some of the um, events for the Olympics here in Fukushima and those events, I think, tend to be more inland in Fukushima city, I think was um, going to be one of the locations there is no problem to visit Fukushima at all. Yeah, in that respect, there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, and on the coast, which is where I live, they are just desperate for. For tourists, And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the tourism industry is going well in Fukushima. Yes, it is. It is going well. In Aizu, Wakamatsu, which is where we have the beautiful Tsurugajo Castle, and there's lots of beautiful snow. And in central Fukushima, there's lots of ski areas and beautiful mountains and lakes. But over here on the coast where I live, it's still really struggling. And so I actually work with a group of women in a place called Yumoto Onsen, which is part of Iwaki City. And, they're, um, and Iwaki City is the the hula city. We have <laughs> declared ourselves oh, really? the hula city. And Iwaki City has a long history uh, with hula, the spa resort Hawaiians, which um, you may have seen the movie Hula Girls, which came out it was, it was probably nearly 20 years ago now.
0: I, I remember the title, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's about Iwaki City and Yumoto Onsen in particular. And oh, wow. so, um, you know, in not, I don't want to use the word desperation, but yeah, really tough times. These women who all are okami so the, the owners of ryokan, came together and decided that they would put on kimono and dance hula. They don't, they're not hula dancers. They taught them, they got a teacher started learning how to hula dance and put on these concerts in in the town as a way to try to bring more tourists to the town and they are called the Kami. you can look them up on the internet Kami. and they're just a really hardworking bunch of women who are just trying everything they can to get visitors to come back to their onsen little onsen town. and it's a really really lovely little onsen town every time I go there, I just feel really relaxed and, yeah, it's a real shame that the visitors aren't coming to enjoy what we have in New Nuwaki City.
0: Yeah, I hope all that can improve as quickly as possible because, uh, I mean, it's just so much time has passed and everyone in that area, businesses and everyone has already gone through so much just because of, uh, you know, the uh, disasters that occurred and, like, to still have people that are trying to get back to – you know, a lifestyle that uh, they can be comfortable with, and they feel like you know they're not struggling anymore. Um, I really think that's uh, an important step. That and it's admirable that so many people from that area have worked so hard to kind of um, bring things back. I mean, even at the plant, I read the, at the nuclear power plant, something like five thousand people are working there daily. Um, so there's obviously a lot of hard work uh, going on there for the uh, decommissioning and the decontamination around that area and stuff still. But when you were talking about these women that you work with, I think this is a great transition for us to talk about some of the other things that you're involved with. Uh, obviously, you have your podcast, uh, Transformations with Jane, if I'm correct.
1: Yes, that's it. My my podcast has been going for nearly three years or something now.
0: Yes, Yeah, and I uh, actually listened to one of, uh, well, I've listened to a few episodes now uh, to well, become you. more familiar with, it. yeah. <laughs> and one of your most recent ones, uh, I think it was with Tracy, is that her name, Tracy? Yeah, Tracy, yeah. It was it was crazy because uh, I was listening to another a different podcast about real estate in Japan uh, just last week or this week, and uh, and it was like right after I finished listening to that one, that was the episode of yours that I first checked out, and she appeared on that one as well. So, yeah, you're, so you're getting a lot of great guests, but could you tell us more about uh, your podcast and uh, some of the other projects that you're involved with?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, 3.11 – as we call it here in Japan, was kind of a moment for me to to realize that I'm going to have to make the decision to make the most of my life here in Japan. If I'm going to live in this disaster zone, in this nuclear disaster zone, I'm going to make the most of it and I'm going to love this place even, even though we've had a, you know, <laughs> have a bit of a rocky time here. And so one of the things I did was notice that I was feeling kind of isolated and alone as a foreign mother of two small children living in a kind of well it's not a rural place here where I live in wacky city. It's a city, but there are not many foreigners. And you know, to go and find a foreigner, I have to walk pretty far, like a couple of kilometers at least, to find one to talk wow. to. Yeah. So I'm the 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 lone foreign lady in my neighborhood, that's for sure. That said, um I thought I'm surely I can't be the only one who feels like this. So that is why I started my podcast because I thought, and well, I was looking around for a place for me to find the voices of my fellow, you know, especially women who are married to Japanese men or women who are living in Japan, where are their voices? And I couldn't find them. So I thought, okay, I will start my own podcast. So that was the start of the Transformations with Jane podcast. And I, I named it that because I was sort of going through my own transformation from someone who, you know, 20 years ago, I arrived in the city, Iwaki City. I was sent here. I did not choose to come here. It was, you know, I was just sent here by the English school that I was working for. The big chain school, you know, they just sort of send you. You know how that works, and I, I got it, off. Yeah. yeah, I got off the train like nearly twenty years ago, and thought, oh my god, what is this place? And yeah, I sort of really didn't know why I was here. Now I I know why I'm here. Yeah, and that was a really really amazing feeling to have. So that was the yeah the start of the the transformations with Jane podcast and a, just a general transformation in myself, going from someone who a oh, poor me. I live in a disaster zone, I'm a victim here, to, okay, what can I what can I do? How can I look at this differently? How can I make the most of the situation? And that was, yeah, so the podcast started to happen. I started to change my thinking about my work, doing more things that I wanted to do, and just generally being more cheerful than I'd ever been in, in my life, potentially. And some of the people around me started to say, what are you doing? What, what what do you want what are you doing? Can I have some too? you know and so that sort of started my journey down the road of like coaching coaching Japanese women here as well, showing them the way so I said, well, I'm just trying some new things and it's these crazy things called you know take take all opportunities and change your thinking about where you are and look what happens and they were like wow can you can you show me how to do that and so yeah this is this is how I got started with doing that here in in fukushima
0: yeah i was was noticing uh a lot of the your guests uh you know they had japanese last names so i was assuming maybe many of them were uh married to japanese men obviously and and a lot of them, they uh seem to have their own types of side projects going on as well so it seems like it's fostering or it's become part of a very large community in japan that um especially women supporting each other in that type of way and uh, i think um, your podcast, the impression I got is a real good source of information uh, to see uh, that specific community in Japan, like uh, what everyone is up to um, and how they're all supporting each other as well. And uh, I also wanted you to ask you about that because I know a lot of people that are quote-unquote lifers uh, being in Japan. Uh, but, you know, to be honest, whether it's just a simple numbers game that uh, there tend to be more perhaps uh, foreign guys that come to japan than foreign women um i don't know too many women uh foreign women that are have been here as long as i have have been here about 18 or 19 years Uh, i do know some and i and i have met many as well in tokyo and stuff do you guys feel like or do you think you might be here uh for life and uh and uh if so like or even i'm being here this long, uh, what are the main factors that have kept you here or that uh, you think will keep you here uh, down the road as well?
1: Yeah, so it's an interesting point that you mentioned. I think there's probably equal numbers of men and women that actually, foreign men and women that come to Japan, but it's generally easier for men to stay in Japan. And that's what I noticed. A lot of my female friends actually went back to their countries. But yeah, I found this the man of my dreams here. So I stayed and it's pretty rough trying to get a date. If you're a foreign woman in in Japan with Japanese men, at least it used to be, I'm talking 20 years ago, This, this is ancient days, but now we're seeing more and more, um, Japanese men, foreign women couples than, than ever before. And I think it's because Japanese men are just sort of catching up with, you know, what it is to be a modern guy (laughs) potentially Mm -hmm. are becoming more marriageable uh, more appealing and less intimidated by foreign women. Anyway. So that's that. Um, Yeah. So am I going to be a lifer? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think the longer that you, you you stay in Japan, the more, the more invested you become and Let's just say it's hard work, right? It is hard work to to learn the language and to create the networks. But when you do, it's incredibly rewarding. And, you know, so there's a big part of not wanting to give that up as well, I think, for, you know, if you had to go back home and start from zero again, it's pretty rough. And it yeah. can be incredibly rewarding, to be so i told you just before i'm you know there's no other foreigners around but some of the opportunities that come to me as being the sole new zealander well not the sole new zealander in town but one of very few new zealanders in the city i got to meet the the deputy prime minister a couple of years ago when he was in town just because i was wow. a new zealander and i was able to speak japanese well enough to be a volunteer translator at a Quite high-level political event that was happening <laughs> in our city, and wow. that was also because we had the um, disaster. And the Japanese government was, you know, making an effort to send um, those sort of big events to our area to help with our, you know, rebuilding and reconstruction as well. Just really crazy things that happen, you know, that you get to be part of when you stay longer in Japan.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned uh, the language because, I mean. For men or women, you know, boys and girls, whoever, um, men, and we've had a lot of guests mention that, that uh, the most important thing is just studying the language, studying the language. And if if you're not studying the language, whether or not you're uh, thinking from the beginning you might want to be in Japan long term or not uh, you're putting yourself at like a huge disadvantage, um, if you're not learning the language because A, it's not going to open up a lot of other opportunities, but B, I think, uh, people that aren't studying the language, they definitely don't get to a level of comfort where they may want to consider staying in Japan long-term as well. Um, for me, uh, you know, it was very important to start studying the language just from the beginning because I was half, uh, because I am half Japanese and I, I, I couldn't speak, uh, japanese at all when i got to japan so that was just like an immediate goal for me and uh and a lot of people that i know here that have been long-term now they obviously have a strong command of the language as well um how did how did you learn your japanese did you uh, do a lot of self-study or well uh, did it obviously help when you got married and stuff and
1: well yes um that but when i was in junior high school in new zealand japanese was the language to learn in new zealand because at that time um, it was sort of like the bubble era, and so many Japanese people were traveling to New Zealand. So, I actually started studying Japanese when I was 13. And wow. yeah, I had an amazing Japanese teacher, which is a fun story. He actually lives in Sapporo now. And I actually nice. really wanted to find him again. And I went on the Japanese TV show to help them find me, uh, to help <laughs> me find him. And wow. it's called Tante Night Scoop. You may have heard of the TV show. Do you know uh, that, I don't do you, know that yeah, one. No, no. I mean, it's a Kansai Kansai area TV show. So it's probably okay. not. So it's only on at like one o'clock in the morning, probably where you are. Um okay. anyway. But anyway, I was reunited with Mr. Maeda. He lives in Sapporo. Hey Mr. Maeda if you're listening. <laughs> really so good guy.
0: Was that <laughs> yeah. up in Sapporo? So he,
1: yeah, he, we found him in Sapporo. That's where he was. We, I thought he'd gone to the Nepal. That's all I knew is when he left New Zealand that he'd gone to Nepal. And and I never heard from him again until I met up with him a couple of years ago, thanks to this TV show. Anyway, um, we were talking about ah, language learning. So thanks to him, I sort of continued my l- language studies in New Zealand for six or seven years, but I never came to Japan. And so I had this sort of, this Thing that I had to come to Japan and learn to speak Japanese properly because, you know, for only learning from books, how good is your Japanese going to be? So that's how I ended up here nearly 20 years ago with a, a reasonable sort of base in Japanese. And so when I got here, I was very, very shocked to realize that I almost knew almost nothing. But I was, you know, six or seven years ahead of my fellow arrivals who who knew nothing. So that really did help me to get started, to make friends. And after that, I actually went and I was working as an English teacher. I went and plonked myself in a completely Japanese environment and worked as a koshi. So that is, I was actually like an ALT, but I was expected to work like a Japanese regular teacher. So I was in a Japanese school all day long. And that was where I really learned, okay, this is Japan. This is, sorry, this is Japan. This is the culture this is the joge kanker, this is, you know, all of that stuff. If I had not had that experience, I wouldn't understand Japan at all. And yeah, I learned a lot more Japanese. Yeah, obviously, I got married to a Japanese man, but I, he speaks English as well, very well. So, if you come to my house for dinner, you better stand, better understand Japanese and English. <laughs> it's kind of a bit of a mixture going on. And it's, our dinner table is quite fun with our kids. But it's an expectation in our family that everybody will speak English and Japanese. We will all be at some level of bilingualism. And I don't think every family has that. And I think I'm very lucky that we have that. We can speak to each other in our own languages and be understood. And that really helps us to have a successful relationship, I feel. So okay, I know that if it's not like that, it can be a lot harder, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, probably one aspect of international relationships or marriages, koksai kekkon, that can either make or break it, is obviously how well the communication can take place and stuff. And, and it sounds like, uh, you know, your experience was similar to mine. I mean, I, I did a lot of self-study, went to Japanese schools and stuff. Even I uh, did a stint as a research student at a small university. So I felt like my Japanese had gotten really good, but uh, it wasn't until I ja- joined a Japanese company. And then A, same feeling like, oh, I actually don't know anything and my yeah. skill level is actually pretty <laughs> Oh, now low.
1: I'm in Japan, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, but because of that experience, well, that's when it did improve the most and stuff. So I think uh, anybody who can find themselves that type of situation where they're forced to speak Japanese in a Japanese environment, that's obviously going to be probably the biggest, uh, aid to actually mastering the language. Um, but man, we covered so much today and honestly, you know, there's a lot more that, uh, I wanted to cover, uh, but we're kind of coming up to that time now. So I, you know, I'll, of course, uh, put the, uh, link to your podcast and stuff in our show notes. Is there anything else that, uh, you wanted to share, uh, with our listeners about what you're up to and where they can learn more about it?
1: Yeah, well, definitely come over and have a listen to the Transformations with Jane podcast, if that sounds interesting to you. If you are living in Japan, and particularly if you're a woman, you'll find a really interesting group of people. We have loads of women who are just getting on with their lives here in Japan, and not making there's no excuses for not enjoying your life just because you live in Japan. So there's that. Um, definitely come and visit us in Fukushima when it's okay to travel again. There is an amazing offer coming up with JR that you can travel, like even if you're not actually, uh, even if you live in Japan, you can actually use a JR Pass now and travel th- to Tohoku for like nima yen for five days, yeah, like ride, ride all the trains. Have you seen that? Um, yeah. Come up to the coastal part of Fukushima. We have an amazing, um, it's called the Seven Bays cycle route which has just been finished so you can cycle through some of the towns that were destroyed in the tsunami and you know help with the recovery there in a really grassroots kind of way so we'd love to see more more guests when it's appropriate to travel again so yeah and thank you for um yeah letting me come on the show and talk about myself for an hour and about (laughs) Fukushima. (laughs) It's really nice to do that for a change. It's nice to be on the other end (laughs) of the interview.
0: It was obviously very easy to do. do. Obviously, you're a podcast pro. I mean, you've uh, started uh, much earlier than we did. We didn't start until uh, the beginning of 2019. So, you know, you're our senpai. (laughs) Uh, so, we've got to uh, Yay, respect you. you that way. And uh, yeah, and it was a really fun chat and an easy chat. So, uh, yeah, I hope uh, you'll join us again sometime. Yeah, uh, yeah just was let me know. i be able to talk to you as well. Yeah. yeah so.
1: Happy to come back anytime. And maybe you might make an appearance over on the Transformations with Jane podcast. If you've got a oh. transformation you'd like to talk about, you can always.
0: Come on over. yeah. <laughs> sure, I'll definitely think about that. There's always a lot of changes going on, especially living in a foreign country and stuff, so maybe there will be a good opportunity to do that. Mm, Appreciate yeah. that. All right, well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time. This episode of the podcast is being sponsored by Hokkaido Guide. Hokkaido Guide was established over 10 years ago and is written by locals for locals and international tourists. The guide contains information on all types of businesses and locations around Hokkaido. There's information regarding all things Hokkaido such as sightseeing, nightlife, events, services, food and restaurants, entertainment, outdoor activities, and much, much more. Currently offered in English and Thai, advertising space is available, so check out Hokkaido Guide for everything you need to know about this beautiful prefecture.